So maybe a, a way to start tonight would be with a favorite quote from E.B. White. And he, he writes that I awaken each morning torn between the desire to serve and desire to savor the world. This makes it hard for me to plan the day. <laughs> May we all face that dilemma. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think of one of the great blessings of the spiritual path and a path of true refuge really as this capacity to love our life, to serve and to savor. And tonight what I'd like to explore is what I consider four main elements that allow us to awaken to true refuge, that really bring us home, and help to nourish that capacity to really be in love with what's right here, moment to moment. So um, that's what we'll be doing tonight. Maybe next week we'll do the thing about planning our day. We'll see, we'll see what we get to. But I wanted to mention, uh, before going much further, is that in addition to those that of us are here, we have many, many friends uh, that are listening in and are, are part of this. And so that aren't on location, and for those that aren't here, just to know that a number of us have gathered to celebrate the launching of True Refuge, of my book, and to, to gather together and enjoy being with each other, and that you're part of it. I've heard from so many people saying they're here in spirit, so I want you to know that we can feel you here. We're, the room is chock full of spirit. <laughs> so in a bit in that way, um, thought I'd start with one of my favorite stories about serving and savoring, about that kind of quality of heart. And some of you might remember, it, it starts with an old dog that wanders into a woman's yard. And she can tell from its collar, though no tags, that it's well-fed, you know, it, it has a home. But for whatever reason, the dog follows her into the house, down the hall, lies down on the couch, and goes to sleep. So she says her dogs didn't seem to mind, and she didn't mind, so she, she let them nap. After an hour, the dog got up, left. Next day, same thing happened. Came in, slept for an hour, and left. So this went on for uh, several weeks. She got curious. She pinned a note to the collar, and she wrote, Every afternoon, your dog comes to my house for a nap. I don't mind, but I want to make sure it's okay with you. Next day, he arrives with a different note pinned to his collar. <laughs> he lives in a home with three children. He's trying to catch up on his sleep. <laughs> May I come with him tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> Serving and savoring. I think of kindness as really the glow of realizing who we are, the realization of true refuge or true nature. The glow or expression of it is kindness. So when I talk about true refuge, I'm really talking about a, a universal path of waking up. And it's a path of waking up from a confused idea of a small or limited or deficient self and realizing what in different traditions have different names. We might be true nature or soul or spirit or God consciousness, but realizing the wholeness, the full potential of who we are. So I'm describing kind of a path of that when I talk about true refuge. And in some deep way, 
coming home to the love and the formless presence that's really essence. Now, in the story of the Buddha, and I see this in, in all the great myths, you can see what's archetypal about waking up. So I'm going to kind of go back and forth between the story of the Buddha and the story of what's going on for us because in that story are really some of these basic steps I talked to you about, the four elements that I want to go through of realization. To start, the Buddha was not born the Buddha, the Buddha was born Siddhartha Gautama and he was born a prince in northern India with a body that had the same fight-flight wiring that we have. And he was born into a culture that was um, becoming more centralized and it was very war, a lot of warlike wars going on and, you know, fights over who possessed what. Not that different from what we're into here. So he had the same conditioning we have to, in a very fundamental way, perceive himself as separate and fixate his attention, his energies, on what would bring pleasure and what would avoid pain. And of course he was very much supported in that, his father who wanted him to be um, either a, you know, rule the kingdom or else at least be a great general, protected him from the outside world. And so Siddhartha grew up in these pleasure palaces, one for each season. You know, he had all, you know, he was very upper, upper class, so he um, his attentions went to the pleasures of amazing food and beautiful gardens and dancing women and so on. And for the first 29 years of his life, that's the way he lived. Now, even after he left, and this is the beginning of the story of transformation, he still took false refuge. Instead of pleasure, he shifted to deprivation. But I'm getting ahead of myself in the story. But it, he, that was part of his story too. So what about us? You know, we come into this world and we are designed to experience who we are as separate so that there's a self in here and a world out there and we need stuff to feel better and we want to protect against what might hurt us. We have that conditioning. And like the Buddha, we get addicted in our own way to substitutes for the real thing. For him, the substitutes were the pleasures that his father and the culture allowed him. And then for him, the substitute was, you know, denying himself as a way to improve himself. Well, we get addicted to substitutes too. And, and I often, I call them false refuges because they give us a temporary way of feeling better. And to the degree that we have felt unloved or not worthy, we pursue them vigorously. For instance, how many of us really shape a lot of what we do to get approval? We don't have to do a hand raise. <laughs> we'll, keep, we'll, we'll just keep... You know, but how many of us, we know that. How many of us do things to feel more special or more important? How many of us get hooked on food to kind of soothe us, our drugs? How many of us use judgment to kind of push up, build ourselves some, or self-judgment to try to 
push ourselves into being a better person. These are false refuges. We keep doing them because they work for a while. I mean, we wouldn't do them. We wouldn't do all of our striving and trying to accomplish things and check things off the list. I know for myself, every time I am able to check something off the list, I do get this, ah, okay, that's done. And it lasts for about a minute and a half until my mind's fixated on the next thing that has to be done. But they work in some ways. One of the, the stories I like, uh, the false refuge stories I like, um, is about a clerk in a, a supermarket. He's actually one of the produce guy. And a, some man comes up to him in the produce department and asks for a half a head of lettuce. And this guy says, we don't do that. But the guy's insisting. So he goes back to where the manager is and said, there's this jerk out there who wants a half a head of lettuce. Then he looks over his shoulder and the man is standing there and he goes, and this fine gentleman is asking for the other half. <laughs> so a little later in the day, his manager said, you know, you know son, I, I like the way you dealt with that. I like a guy that can think on his feet. Where are you from? And he said, Canada. He said, well, what got you to move down here? He said, oh, Canada. All there are are whores and hockey players up there. The guy said, well, my wife comes from Canada. And the guy said, oh, what team did she play for? <laughs> so his, you know, he was clever, he was quick. And, you know, it's fun to listen to, but how many of us are um, really try to use our cleverness, or our intelligence, or figuring out to prove something so that we feel better about ourselves and then we have to keep on proving it and keep on proving it. Because the problem with false refuges is that if we're feeling insufficient and we're using them to feel better about ourselves, it reconfirms the insufficiency. We need that, we're not okay. So we get wired more and more to be dependent on our substitute. Okay, so the Buddha caught up in his false refuges, we and ours, living in a kind of trance where we're forgetting what really matters. And day by day, I mean, we might sit here and remember what matters, but how many moments of the day are we caught in some sense of um, shoulds and expectations and trying to dig ourselves out? A lot of moments. Now, this is what we might call the forgetting. We do have a built-in sensor for remembering. And what starts to wake us up is we just start getting the suffering of it. That we've spent a lot of time proving ourselves and feeling like the suffering of not really feeling confident in a very deep way. Or maybe it's an addiction to substance and really getting it that it's keeping us from intimacy. But some suffering wakes us up. That's what suffering does. And that's what happened with the Buddha. So this is the first element. The first element on a path of true refuge is recognizing the suffering of the trance we're in. Just getting it. We spend a lot of moments lost in thought. A lot of moments living from a smaller sense of self than what's the truth. Getting the suffering, that's the first step. 
Now for the Buddha, the way that step came around was through the heavenly messengers of aging, sickness, and death. That's, for most of us, in some way, impermanence is the wake-up. You know, we get it. Loss is happening. People we love, our youth, relationships go. You know, we get the suffering of that. So, for the Buddha, these heavenly messengers appeared and they kind of jarred him and let him know that his pleasure palaces were not going to protect him from the inevitability of loss. There's a a psychologist on the West Coast, his name is uh, Victor Yalom, and he's a psychologist and a cartoonist. And one of the cartoons he has here is of a psychiatrist, and his patient is the Grim Reaper. (laughs) And here's the caption, the Grim Reaper speaking, No, Doc, I'm afraid it's your time that's up. (laughs) I think that's great. So, for both the Buddha and for us, something wakes us up and has us realize um, the way I'm living is a trance and there's some deeper refuge, some deeper way of paying attention, some deeper thing I can discover that has meaning, that can carry me home. And for the Buddha, he realized it, he left, he left home and he committed himself to awakening, but he had a flip to another false refuge. And we often do this. We carry into spiritual life our kind of egoic strategies. Um, I for sure have seen that in myself, that my you know, type A, hard driving personality before I moved into an ashram transferred. And so I brought the same energies in. I was going to practice hard and meditate deeply. And I had, it was very competitive with myself and others. And, you know, it was still reaffirming a self that needed to improve. We bring our strategies with us. So the Buddha flipped to, as I described before, a a real renunciation that had to do with self-deprivation. He starved himself and wandered around without sufficient clothing and so on until he had to again meet the heavenly messengers in the form of his own dying body. He got it. Self-deprivation did not spiritually liberate him. Well, we do it with self-judgment and trying to, in different ways, um, be heavy with ourselves. But he got it. And when he got it, then he started asking the deeper questions, which is really, in the face of this changing world where we know these bodies are going, we know we lose everything, how do we find a true happiness and a true peace and a full presence in the midst. What makes it possible? So this is the core question. And I'll read you a bit of this is uh, from the Buddha. He said, Why should I, who am subject to birth, old age, sickness, death, sorrow and suffering, why should I take refuge in that which is also subject to change? Let me find that which is changeless, which is deathless, which is unborn and undying, that is a true refuge. And in fact, this is what he found. So we go from 
recognizing the suffering of a trance, that we're living inside a very small sense of what we are, recognizing the the squeeze of that, how it separates us from ourselves and each other, to this longing, to this aspiration, may I find that which is timeless? May I touch into that which is timeless, which is always and already here, beyond this living, dying, changing world? Sridhar Sargadatta is um, an Indian teacher no longer alive. He put it this way, he said, if everything changes, everything's changing, what then is true? So the second of the elements, the first is recognizing suffering, the second of the elements is getting in touch with our aspiration. What is it that we really care about? You know, cutting through the assumed goals of our day and really getting it that the freedom and the peace and the love that our hearts long for, that's what we want to pay attention to. And the sign of coming home to a true aspiration is a quality of sincerity. For me, that's the best word. When I feel sincere, um, there's not a been there, done that. There's not like it's prepackaged. There's a, a kind of tenderness, a sincerity, and it's very embodied when we're in touch with aspiration. It's like our hearts are, are glowing with it. There's, we, it gives us the energy to devote ourselves. That's the second quality that frees us. Recognizing suffering, waking up this, this longing. So, in the Buddha's life, what happened is he had that longing and he wanted to discover that timeless presence. So what did he do? He sat down under the Bodhi tree. Okay? And that's what we do when we pause to meditate. Every time we pause and say, I really want to reconnect, I want to come home to this heart, this moment, this being, we're pausing. We're discontinuing the doings that really fuel the persona and the trance. And we're saying, out of that longing, please, I really want to come home. He paused. The whole meaning of the Bodhi tree to me, when I see the Bodhi tree, sacred pause. So this is uh, Martha Postlewaite. Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, Create a clearing in the dense forest of your life. Create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. Do not try to save the world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life. So our four elements. The first, recognize the suffering of trance. The second, really open to that longing for freedom. The third, pause. We need to pause. By the way, these are not four that you do the the four and then it's like, 
okay, done, free. <laughs> this is like over and over and over again. Okay, I think you knew that though. <laughs> okay. All right, so we've paused and then the fourth is in that pause we bring the two wings of presence. We bring that attention right here. The two wings being recognizing what's happening in the moment, mindfulness. This is truth, what's here? And the other wing is holding it with compassion. So we pause and we bring that clear and kind attention right to this moment. And so this is what the Buddha did in the myth, that through the night under the Bodhi tree, he sat as Mara, Mara is the shadow god, you know, who brought all the energies of greed and hatred and illusion and jealousy and all the stuff that keeps us caught up in trance when we get possessed by it. Well, Mara appeared, as Mara appears all the time, and threw all this stuff at him, you know, in arrows and slings and so on. And the Buddha met with presence uh, these attacks and as the myth goes, brought the wings of mindfulness and, and, and compassion and each one turned to a flower petal till by morning he had a heap of flower petals in front of him. And in this way, by sitting through the night, by encountering uh, whatever arises with mindfulness and compassion and by looking deeply into his own awareness, that inquiry, who's here? What's aware? What really is this? He came home to the realization of his own radiant awareness. This is source. This is truth. And that's when we are having that realization that more than any story we're living in about ourselves, this awake openness, this tenderness, this presence is more what we are than any of those ideas, any of the personas that come forth. This is what's changeless. So the Buddha found that. He had that realization. I was under the Bodhi tree. But that's not the end of the story. He then spent the next 48 years of his life bringing that realization of his true refuge into action, into an engagement with the world. He lived it. He lived from it. And how did he do it? Serving, loving, teaching, holding with compassion this world. Now, one of my favorite parts of the myth, and then I'm going to come back to us, is that throughout his career of what you might call embodied realization, where he was awake, he was realizing the essence of what he was and its expression was love, was engaged, service and compassion. Through those 48 years, Mara kept coming back. And that's probably the single most reassuring thing we could hear. That here the Buddha was. He had woken up. You know, that's the idea. It's realization. And Mara kept appearing. Mara keeps appearing. Those energies are deeply conditioned. They keep arising. The Buddha's response, when Mara would appear, let's say at a gathering, the Buddha's loyal attendant Ananda would see him and go, oh my God, the evil one is here, you know, kind of like that. And the Buddha would say, no, 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 it's okay. And he'd directly to Mara, he'd say, I see you, Mara. 
come in, let's have some tea. What a beautiful way to context the ongoing encounter we have with difficult stuff. I see you. Come on in for tea. Right away, rather than being identified, rather than being at war with ourselves, rather than taking it as self, right away we're resting in something larger, in that timeless presence. So in our lives, we might encounter suffering, we might go, yes, I really want to wake up, I really want to live true to myself, I want to live from my heart, I want to live from presence. We feel the aspiration. We pause, we begin to bring our attention to what's going on. And each time that happens, each time we true, and it has to happen fresh, it can never be like a routine, but each time in a fresh way, we pause with that intention to bring a true presence and care to what's going on, we more and more discover who we really are. Our identity shifts. And the place that it happens that's most confusing and most challenging and most powerful for most of us is with each other. Mara arises in our engagement with each other. So the very, for the last portion of what I'm going to do, I'm tracking time because I promised myself I wouldn't go too long tonight. But the last portion is how Mara arises in our relationships with each other. And it usually takes the form of something's wrong. Something's wrong with me or something's wrong with you. Does that sound familiar? Okay, there's just something's wrong going on. Or it could be the form of something's missing. I'm missing something here still something's wrong. We're wanting things different. And, you know, often we're wanting the other person to be different. So as I speak now, I'm going to be inviting you to kind of consider where this is activated for you. But we have often an expectation or demand or need, like, unless you change, I can't be happy. This relationship's not working unless you change. Some of you might remember, I think it was the Sylvia cartoon series, I don't know if it's still there, but in one she's uh, with a fortune teller and she's saying, she's saying, you know, my husband won't talk about his feelings. And Sylvia goes, what else is new? <laughs> but anyway, she, she goes, no, I really, I need to, I need to see what, what's possible. So she goes into her fortune teller guise and she's, you know, looking at her crystal ball and she says, in January of 2013, men will start talking about their feelings. Within moments, women across the nation will be sorry. <laughs> now, the deal is for most of us that we know is that whenever we have a demand that the other be different, no matter how right it seems, whenever there's that demand or expectation, in those moments, our heart's not free to love, to really love fully. It just isn't. It's like our energy is tight. There's a contraction. We're creating distance. And in the reverse, we know, many of us have tasted, even if just for a short time, what it's like to be with someone who's really deeply paying attention 
deeply present and really has no expectation. And those are the moments that we actually are free to come home to ourselves. We actually become more who we are in that nourishment, in that allowing space. So then you might be questioning, well, yeah, but what if you're with someone who's abusive? I mean, don't you want to expect that that person would change then? So I just want to say that acceptance doesn't mean we don't do what's intelligent to take care of ourselves, what's healthy, to create boundaries and so on. But still, our hearts, if our hearts in some way are making the demand, you be different, you're wrong, you're bad, then we're closed. Is it possible to make the boundaries we need to make, to communicate intelligently and honestly, and have our arts still stay open in an accepting way? And I ask that because I I think of Carl Rogers who said, you know, it wasn't until I accepted myself exactly as I was that I was free to change. In other words, that space of acceptance is the prerequisite to an honest, real, deep transformation. I mean, you can, you can strong-arm people into changing their behaviors. You can guilt them into changing their behaviors. That's not deep transformation. So a story that I wanted to share tonight um, that I think illustrates this, that, that, I, that has inspired me many rounds, so I share it whenever I have an opportunity, was about a friend of mine from college who recontacted me some years after we had graduated, hadn't seen him. He had joined meditation group, was involved with Tibetan meditation, but he needed some support in a life situation. And it was this, that he was African-American, photojournalist. He had married a Caucasian woman And while her father was okay with it, her mother had locked into a really hostile stance. And they would visit and she'd be rude and she'd ignore him. And in her mind, he was a man of a different race and it meant trouble and unhappiness for both of them. And she just was cut off. So for him, the way Mara was appearing was he was hurt and angry. Okay. His wife was outraged. She didn't even want to keep visiting her family. But part of his path was this aspiration that whatever circumstances arise, may this serve the awakening of heart and mind. And that was his aspiration. He didn't want to, um, he wanted to keep trying. And part of the teaching of his path, and this is from Chogyam Trungpa, was to never give up on anybody. So we explored together what was coming up for him he created some space, he did the pausing, okay, so he had the aspiration, he created the clearing, contacting Mara, what was painful, and for him it went right to some very deep childhood wounds where he felt that um, he could never be enough. His father had left his mother and he could never fill his, his shoes, he could never be enough, and he also felt not valued and so on, and so this played right into it. So he brought these two wings of presence to that. He did Tonglen, which I won't go into now, but really breathing in and connecting with where the pain was, being aware of it, recognizing it, breathing out, really offering a tremendous kind of compassion to his younger self. This kind of gesture I show you often of just really offering kindness inwardly. 
until in some time, and he did some practice like this for a few weeks, he felt more intimate with his own being. He was more at home in himself. And he felt like he could go. Next trip was Thanksgiving. He felt like he could do it. So he decided to bring his camera. And his camera was in a way a support in his practice to be able to stay connected with himself but pay good attention to what was around him. So they go for Thanksgiving, she's still rude. Thanksgiving dinner doesn't really acknowledge him. Next night won't go out for dinner and be seen in public with them, pretty bad. While he was there, he took some pictures and he realized as he was paying attention that behind her way of treating him, there was this tight heart that was very afraid. He could see her fear and he could sense that it it wasn't him, it was to do with her daughter's happiness you know, and her daughter is an extension of her. Christmas comes around. They go to Christmas gathering. Her sister brought the child, a lot of, you know, great event. They do a gift exchange. The parents, the mother, gave him socks, too big, and gave him candy. He's, you know, a health type of person. Um, She opens her gift that he gave her and she begins, everybody's sitting there, and she just begins weeping. When people crowded around, what he had given her were two pictures he had taken. One was a picture of her when she was playing with her new granddaughter with this adoring look on her face, and the other when she had kind of flopped on the couch with her husband and they were kind of in a playful moment. He had captured her goodness. She realized in that moment she had been seen. He had created a connection. Now, this was not some magic unfreezing right away. It took, it took a long time. But this is the beginning of the thaw. And what had happened? You know, he had, instead of continuing in the trance of reactivity, hurt, angry, you know, playing it out, he had that aspiration that comes out of suffering to really come home to himself. He paused, he brought the attention to his own experience in a way that he was more compassionate and and with himself. He was able to see her. He saw her vulnerability and he saw her goodness. He could see more truly. So this is the blessing we're talking about tonight of coming home to our true nature, to true refuge is that the more that we're living in that presence, the more we're able to serve and savor. The more we can be in love with life. We can see the the bigger picture. We can see if we know who we are, if we're not caught in a sense of ourself as egoic, as diminished, as superior, whatever the storyline is. In other words, if we see behind our own mask to who's here, we can look at each other and see who's looking through those eyes. We can see who's living in that heart. So I think of this as the hope. You know, we we look at the suffering in the world and see the oppression of minorities. We see the cycles of violence and we see the overconsumption and the way our earth is being destroyed. And it can bring a despair because we really get that it's coming out of trance. It's this reactivity playing out, playing out. A collective not knowing who we are, not seeing the other. 
but the hope, and this is a kind of in an evolutionary context, is that we have this capacity to wake up. We have this capacity to, this longing to come home. It's in us. We have some intuition of what home is, that there's something timeless. There's something loving and present in us to come home to. And we have the capacity to train our attention, to deliberately train our attention that wakes us up. So that's the hope. I mean, I think of Steven Pinker and his book, Better Angels of Our Nature, and how he talks about the reduction of violence that's been going on over the last uh, decades. And even, you know, if you look at the long picture, we are less violent world than we were. That's hopeful. We look at the growing number of bumper stickers saying random acts of kindness. (laughs) It's hopeful, you know. More people are meditating. So I'd like to end by saying that it ripples out that when we come home and in some way out of that homecoming there's kindness, it ripples out. And uh, a kind of closing story for you tonight is of that rippling and it's a story told by Bernard Hare. Uh, he, in, 18, in 1982 he, he describes something that changed his whole life. And he was an impoverished student at that time living in London He tells a story to troubled young people to help them deal with their lives. He says that he was, uh, he called home to Leeds and found out his mother was in a hospital. She wasn't expected to survive the night, so his father told him to get home. He goes to the railroad station, finds he's missed the last train. There's only, another train would only take him as far as Peterborough, but the connecting train he would miss by 20 minutes. So he's desperate, but he buys a a ticket, gets on anyway. He said, I had a screwdriver in my pocket and a bunch of skillet and keys. I was so desperate to get home, I planned to nick a car in Petersboro, hike, hitch a hike, steal some money, something, anything. I knew from my dad's tone of voice that my mother was going to die and I was going to get home and it killed me. So he's on the train. Tickets, please. He fumbles in his pocket, gives the guard the ticket. The guard stamps it but just stands there. He says, you just stood there looking at me. I've been crying, had red eyes and must have looked a fright. You okay? Of course I'm okay. Why wouldn't I be? And what's it got to do with you in any case? Well, is there anything I can do? You could get lost and mind your own business. I said, that'd be a big help. Guy says, well, if there's a problem, I'm here to help. That's what I'm paid for. He goes, I was a big bloke in my prime. So I thought for a second about physically sending him on his way. Somehow it didn't seem appropriate. I told him my story. Look, my mom's in the hospital dying. She won't survive the night. I'm going to miss the connection to Leeds at Peterborough. I'm not sure I'm going to get home. It's now or never. If I don't get a chance, she'll die. Now I'd be grateful if you'd leave me alone, okay? Okay, he said, finally getting up. Sorry to hear that, son. I'll leave you alone. He wanders off. I continue to look out the window at the dark. Ten minutes later, he's back. Oh, no, here we go again. I'm going to have to really rag him down the train. He touched my arm. Listen, when we get to Peterborough, shoot straight over to platform one as quick as you like. The Leeds train will be there. I looked at him dumbfounded. Wasn't registering. Come again, I said stupidly. What do you mean? Is it late or something? No, it's not late. I just radioed Peterborough. They're going to hold the train up for you. As soon as you get on, it goes. Everyone will be complaining about how late it is, but let's not worry about that on this occasion. You'll get home. That's the main thing. Good luck and God bless. 
Then he was off down the train again. Tickets, please? Any more tickets now? I suddenly realized what a top-class, fully-fledged oil arm I was and chased him down the train. I wanted to give him all the money from my wallet, my driver's license, my keys, but I knew... <laughs> a screwdriver, you know. I knew he'd be offended. I caught him, I caught up to him. I, I just wanted to... I, er, it's okay, he said, not a problem. He had a warm smile, true compassion in his eyes. He was a good man for its own sake, required nothing in return. I wish I had some way to thank you, I said. Appreciate what you've done. Not a problem, he said again. If you feel the need to thank me, the next time you see someone in trouble, you help them out. That will pay me back amply. Tell them to pay you back the same way and soon the world will be a better place. I was at my mother's side when she died in the early hours of the morning. My meeting with the good conductor chained me from a selfish, potentially violent hedonist into a decent human being, but it took time. I've paid him back a thousand times since then. I tell the young people I work with, and I'll keep on doing so until the day I die, you owe me nothing, nothing at all. And if you think you do, I'd give you the same advice as the good conductor gave me. Pass it down the line. So on this path of homecoming, there's a forgetting of who we are and a remembering. And in the moments of remembering, it's quite natural. In fact, it is the nature of being at home in our own heart-mind to have that radiance of kindness. Just close with quietness for a few moments, closing your eyes. Let this be another moment of making a clearing and of bringing an intimate attention just to the life right here. from the Radiant Sutras. There's a place in the heart where everything meets. Go there if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are there. Are you there? Enter the bowl of vastness that is heart. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is there and a steady, regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing, I belong here, I am at home here. Namaste. And thank you for your attention. So we are going to make a little bit of a shift and uh, again we're going to 
invite you just to take, uh, you know, half a minute or so to feel free to shift around, make yourself comfortable, and invite uh, the next person who's going to be leading us in and uh, offering to us a bit of um, dharma in a different form, I invite her to come up. Hi there. <laughs> My name is La. And uh, 14 and a half years ago, I first walked into this hall and uh, sat with Tara. And it's been uh, incredible to see how this community has grown over the last 14 and a half years. So I just want to offer this uh, in honor of her new book and in honor of my beloved teacher, mentor, colleague, and friend. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how my thoughts would make me cry. And I knew when I took a glance at Tara Brock, I'd have a chance of maybe being happy for a while. Because her compassion makes hearts quiver with every Dharma talk she delivers. With bad news on our doorsteps, how can we take one more step? When it's time to heed the call and radically accept what's to befall, (laughs) you ain't going to find it in some shopping mall. (laughs) True refuge, no need to stall. (laughs) Wait, there's more. So bye-bye, false refuge, bye-bye. No more donuts or heartbreaking, ain't no place left to hide. Got dharmic skills, no need to bump up my pride. Tara's wisdom is a powerful guide. Tara's wisdom is a powerful guide. Well, she wrote a book on love to trust ourselves above and beyond. Can you find your breath again? Does your body feel much more than whole has sitting? Saved your mortal soul and uh, I can teach you how to walk real slow. Because you know mindfulness is the way to save us from our everyday. So just kick off your shoes before entering the hall dudes. I was a lonely drop in the ocean wave, but true refuge saved this ducad slave. I found freedom thanks to rain. We can begin again. And we were singing, bye-bye, false refuge, bye-bye. No more donuts or heartbreaking, ain't no place left to hide. Got dharmic skills, no need to bump up my pride. Tara's wisdom is a powerful guide. Tara's wisdom is a powerful guide. 
and we were singing bye bye false refuge bye bye no more donuts or heartbreaking ain't no place left to hide got dharmic skills no need to bump up my pride tara's wisdom is a powerful guide We're going to have that at the beginning of every podcast that goes out, so <laughs> just to set the mood. Bless you and thank you, La. Uh, so what's next? We have some dear friends. These are friends of mine from many, many years that have some beautiful music to share with us. So Gurganesh, I'm going to let you um, introduce everyone else, but welcome and thank you for being here. I think we should open for them. They were magnificent, huh? <laughs> I said we should have opened for them. <laughs> wow, what a treat to sit and meditate with you all. And, and it's such a, a blessing for us to be here to honor our dear friend uh, Tara. And. Uh, celebrate the, the beautiful gift of these teachings that uh, she has been a channel for for all these years. And it's a special uh, evening for, for me. I'm here with my wife, Matamundarkar. Can you tell which one is my wife? <laughs> and this is a, a dear friend, Shana, who has Shana Simon, and she has a yoga center about five, ten minutes from here, called Simon Says Yoga. <laughs> nice name, huh? <laughs> and uh, this is uh, a dear brother uh, from uh, many years. Uh, his name is Sakatar Singh, and he's going to be playing uh, some wonderful uh, Indian drums for us tonight. But, you know, this style of music that we do, some people call it kirtan, some people call it mantra music, some people call it sacred music. Uh, my mother says, why do you keep singing the same lines over and over again? <laughs> but it's really a co-formance versus a performance. So we're going to encourage you to co-form in whatever way you're so inclined, whether that be just to sit and co-form internally or to sing along or to clap along or to stand and move or none of the above. So there's no, there's no requirement. But I would like you to look around and uh, find somebody... If, if you have somebody that you know next to you, look them lovingly in the eyes and say, you know, have I told you lately how much I love your singing voice? Mm 
I'm serious. <laughs> and if there's somebody around you that you don't know, I, I'd like you to look them lovingly in the eyes and say, you know, I haven't heard you sing yet. <laughs> and I haven't seen you dance yet. But I know I'm going to love it. And, and, and this is just another way to kind of connect with that true refuge. Because this first um, mantra they're going to chant is just basically got two words in it. One of the words is Ram, which means the, en the engine of the divine. Ram, 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 Ram. Ram. And then Bolo, I sing it out, I shout it out, I celebrate it. So it's, it goes Ram. Repeat after me just for if you're so inclined. Ram Bolo. Ram Bolo. Ram Bolo. Ram Bolo. Bolo Bolo Ram. Bolo Bolo Ram. Ram Bolo. Ram Bolo. Ram Bolo. Bolo, Bolo, Ram. Bolo, Bolo, Ram. I mean, basically, all these mantras mean the same thing, you know? My essence is divine. My essence is kind. My essence is pure. My essence is light. Inside of each of us, the light of a thousand suns.
You know, you have Christendas coming soon. I think. What is, that? what is the date? March 16th. Wow. And I was listening to You know, Christendas, he was kind of the pioneer of this kind of music. It's, and um, I was listening to a radio interview. And, and the interviewer asked him, asked him, well, you know, what is this kind of music? What is it about? He said, well, you know, if you can only shut the mind down, you know, and just vibrate from the heart center, amazing things happen. And the, and the announcer, the interviewer said, well, how do I do that? And he said, well, come to the concert tomorrow night. <laughs> And just sing along. Sing along at a certain point. Your mind might shut down. It's kind of pure grace when it happens. You know, I toured with Sanatam Kaur. Are you familiar with Sanatam? For about 11 years. And, she, you know, she has a kind of voice that could rest tears from a stone gargoyle, you know. And so we did a concert up in Calgary, Canada. And um, at the end of the concert, you know, do you know Calgary? It's kind of like the, it's a rodeo town. It's like the Cheyenne, Wyoming of Canada. It's wonderful. The end of the concert, this guy about my age, kind of 60-ish, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, a little different head covering. He had a cowboy hat on. And instead of a 40-year growth, he had about four days, very sandpapery. You know, he had a flannel shirt, boots, old blue jeans. He comes up to me. He grabs, takes my hand, grabs my hand, and says, You broke me, man. You broke me. <laughs> I said, we, you know, and I kind of knew what he meant. But I wanted to hear more. I said, we, we broke you? What do you mean we broke you? He says, well... My wife's been dragging me to these here chant concerts now for about four years. But about halfway through tonight, I realized I was singing. <laughs> I said, no, say it ain't so, man, not you. I said, well, when you realized you were singing, you stopped right away, didn't you? He said, no, man, I'm embarrassed to say I sang the rest of the way that gal broke me. <laughs> I love that because that was it was about his intellect shut down all the stereotypes shut down everything went away except for the here now so we're going to do a, a, a mantra for prosperity because you know I, I've studied with this gentleman from India named Yogi Bhajan for many years he passed in 2004 or so and he used to say he used to encourage us to start businesses and make money and, you know, I was a hippie in the late 60s, and I had this self-limiting belief that money would corrupt me, you know. Money was evil. And he, no, he said, no, 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 man. He says, good people should have lots of money. I said, really? I said, why? He said, because good people, if they have lots of money, will do a lot of good things. So I want to dedicate this to the success of Tara's incredible book. True. That... <laughs> That, the, that faucet of prosperity, which has been flowing and flowing for Tar because of her incredible work, just continue to flow, become a flood, because you know the incredible work she's going to continue doing. You know? So the mantra, repeat after me, Sat Narayan. Sat Narayan. Wahe Guru. Wahe Guru. Hari Narayan. Hari Narayan. Narayan. Satnam. 
Satnam. I'm not even going to try to explain what it means. I think you could feel what it means, but Nar- Narayan is the, the, the provider, the nurturer, the sustainer of the universe. So we'll do a tantric style. Oh, and that's your son's name. Wow, interesting coincidence, huh? Perhaps serendipity, you know. And um, so we'll do a tantric style. So we want to invite the men to sing with Sat Katar Singh and I. You know, sing it really. And then we'd like to, to hear the goddesses sing along with Shana and Mata Mandakar. And then at a certain point, we'll Shakti and Shiva will join together. And we'll, you know, the 10th gate shall open. And then we'll eat cake, right, Tara?
before. <laughs> All right, and just in closing, you know this song, May the Long Time Sun Shine Upon You, All Love Surround You, and the Pure Light Within You Guide Your Way On. So grab your neighbor's hand. <laughs> and feel your presence merged with their presence. Feel that electric current that flows through all of us. Stop. 
to all, love to all, join me, peace to all, life, life to, to all, all, love to all, peace to all, life to all, love to all. Namaste. Satnam. Let's celebrate with Tara. Shana. Matamandakar Satatar Sam. Sangeet on sound and um, Glenn, we want to thank Glenn for all his help. Love you, Satnam. Oh, yes. And Eric reminds me that there's, you know, this incredible Buddha Fest celebration, June 20 to June 23rd, and my whole band, the drums, bass, the nickel harpa, are all going to be there Saturday night, June 22nd. That's Buddha Fest. Where is it going to be? I can't see that. Where? Artisphere Spectrum in Arlington. It's 
So a deep, Why deep you thank you. you get. This, I just want you to know, these all, this has been 30 years now that we would hang out in the ashram each morning and this chanting, and it was kind of one of the, the most precious gateways into spiritual life I could have ever been blessed with, and these friends have been a deep part of it. So thank you. It's such an amazing thing to weave it into current life. Uh, you're wonderful. Please do come to Budapest and enjoy it again. Uh, this is amazing music. You'll keep on opening with it. And stay tonight. We have quite the hall of refreshments. Please stay and hang out with us. And if anybody has a book that wants signing, my hand has been exercised and I'm ready to go. <laughs> Thank you.